we'd gotten into chapter two and we're seeing some very different things. And I would hope today we would be able to complete chapter two. I don't know if we will. Uh, what, I'm, what I want to do is I want to read chapter two, verses one through nine, make a couple of comments here and there. And then when we get into chapter 10, we can pick up where we left off at last time to show some things. Deuteronomy chapter two, verse one. Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by way to the Red Sea as the Lord spoke to me and circled Mount Seir for many days. Now remember, chapter two, verse one is connected to the command in chapter one, verse 40, okay? They were told to go ahead and go out. If you remember, oh no, now that we think this is gonna happen to us, we're gonna go out and serve the Lord now. And, and the Lord told Moses, tell them not to go. I am not with them. And they ended up suffering a major defeat. So now they're heading out. In this time, chapters, chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, we do not know how long this time period was. It was 38 years of wandering, and we're not for sure where they went, except they headed towards the Red Sea, as they were told. So verse 2, And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north. And command the people, saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. Now, does anybody remember what Seir is? No? That's Kadesh Barnea. Edom, exactly. Edom, the descendants of Esau. Okay? So notice, your brothers, it's the connection they have with Israel. Notice here to Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Verse 5, do not provoke them, for I will not give you any of their, what is it? That's the subject under consideration. Remember, when they're moving in, it's because they are coming to finally take possession of the land that was promised to Abraham initially in Genesis chapter 12. And so he says here, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And what we've seen is the interchangeable word in the NASB for possession is what? Remember? Inheritance. The idea of inheritance. It's the idea of an inheritance that they are granted by God. God determines the real estate of people. He is God. He determines that. It says here, Verse 6, you shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat and you shall also purchase water from them with money that you may drink. Notice that God is calling them to exist or to correspond, exist with them, correspond with them with fair economic terms. Pay for what you eat. Pay for what you drink. It's not come in, conquer, smack some people on some head and take what you want. That's not what it is. It is fair trade, fair economic principles that are going on. It says here, verse 7, here's the reason. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Pay for what you eat. Pay for what you drink. God is your provider. You lack nothing. There should be no sense of want among you. Everybody with me? Okay, good. So it says here, and Mitch, we're going to need the map here in just a second. So we pass beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah Road, important, 
away from Elath and from Ezion-Geber, and we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. Now, let's go ahead and bring that up. And real quick, if you have not, remember, uh, if you've missed something in Deuteronomy, you can talk with Mitch. Mitch is going to have it up online. But we're using a new software program and all this stuff, and what Mitch has put together to go along with these studies is phenomenal. Okay, it really is. He is the bee's knees, the cat's pajamas, and all those other fun words. He is. Can we bring up this map here? Okay. There we go. Uh, can we bring up the other one? We're going to bring up this one here in just a second whenever we start talking about conquest. There we go. Okay, everybody see over here? This is the Gulf of Aquaba. The path going from the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea down. Everybody see that stream coming down? That right there is what is known as the Arabah. So when we see there the Arabah in that verse, I think it was verse 9. When we're dealing with Arabah, let me see here, verse 8. The Arabah road away from Elath and from Ezion-Geber. That's what we're dealing with. Now, Ezion-Geber is right here. Notice that you have Edom up there, right? So there's where everybody from Esau is going to be. And they're going up towards where? What's it say? Moab. So notice that they're going up this right-hand side here, or what we would consider the east side of that, up through Moab. Now, Moab is descended from who? Lot. In fact, it's Lot's situation after they had fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, and his daughters decided to get him drunk so that they could have kids, right? Weirdos, but... Doesn't change the fact that they're related in some way, okay? So notice here, verse 9, Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab. Now notice, verse 4, you have Edom. Don't harass them. Verse 9, you have Moab, and you have the same type of command. Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war. Why? For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, as an inheritance, because I have given R to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now stop for just one second. Everybody see that A-R there? Okay. That's usually referred to as a city, and it doesn't seem that too many people are, are really sure where that city is located at. But if context determines the meaning, R can also be, be used as a general statement for the idea of the land of Moab. Let me give you a for instance. Anytime that you're reading through the Old Testament and you see the word Israel, you have to ask yourself two questions. Is it talking about the land of Israel? Is it talking about the people of Israel? I guess the third question. Or is it talking about Jacob is really who you have to ask yourself, right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Sometimes he's called Jacob. Sometimes he's called Israel. You have to bounce those out. Context will determine the meaning and tell you who you're referring to. It's the same kind of idea. When it says here, I have given R, A-R, to the sons of Lot as a possession, as an inheritance, it is speaking to this idea of, probably speaking of Moab there as a whole on the side. So Edom, Esau's possession, their inheritance. Moab, Moab's possession, I guess we would call it, or is referred to as R here. Now, Here's where we get into the strange things that we left off with last time. Verse 10, the Emim lived there formally. That's important. Before Moab was there, a group of people called the Emim were there. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Now remember, they were scared to death of the Anakim, right? 
Like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, which we're going to deal with them a little bit more here in a minute. But the Moabites call them Emim. So here's what had happened. These Emim that lived here, the Moabites came in, and because God gave them possession of the land, the Moabites defeated the Emim, cast them out of the land, utterly destroyed them, however you want to say it, and took up possession of that land as their inheritance. Now, does everybody remember what the Emim and the Rephaim and the Anakim were? They were giants. Mitch, can we bring this up? Now, Catherine Fick sent me this email that w it was cool, and I want to show you this thing about the giants. Do we have that ready? Uh, just throw one up there, man. They're all fun. They're all a good time. There we go. How big were these grapes they had? Well, this is probably the general idea of what a man was in size at that time, but they could also get up to as big as 36 feet tall at that time. You're and here's the interesting thing. I think it's right around in this realm, a little bit smaller. You're dealing with Goliath's people, okay? So we don't know how big they were. The text doesn't necessarily say it. When we get into Og of Bashan, we start talking about him at the beginning of chapter 3. You find out that his bed was actually, I think, 13 or 14 feet tall and 6 feet wide. And after they killed him and took his land, they kept his bed as a trophy to show everybody just how huge he was. So this whole idea of giants in the Old Testament, it's not some weird supernatural uh, phenomenon or occurrence that shouldn't be considered. No, they were, they were around everywhere in that. Let's try another one as well. There we go. There's some of the bones that they found. And notice the guy standing next to it, just how big they are. Let's go to another one. National Geographic even talked about it. Wait, wait, go back. There's the dude in the midst of them. That's not like a pimple or nothing. That's really a guy. That's really a guy there. I notice. I mean, how about that right there? Two guys right here. You can't see the other guy. He's kind of hiding out. See, that's the amazing thing. The Bible is not insanely divorced from archaeology. A lot of people would like to say, well, it's just a spiritual book. It's just a mythical book. None of this stuff really happened. The more we dig, and especially the past 120 years, the more we find. Huge. It was. Think about it. Your whole family could probably live off one, right? There's the idea. Og of Bashan. It's probably in this scale right here. Here was the average guy at that time. Now, here's the amazing thing to think about with that. The Moabites came in and dispossessed them, kicked them out of their land. Okay? What was the fear of the first generation coming up? Well, there's giants in the land. We've seen the Anakin. We looked like grasshoppers compared to them. That's a little dramatic, right? It sounds like a seventh grader got a hold of that. But they're not totally wrong. But who fights the battle? God. God wants them to have the land. It doesn't matter how big they are. Obey him. He'll give you the land. See how that works? It's very important to see. These were very real things that they were dealing with at that time. And notice verse 12 here. The Horites formerly lived in Seir. Where's Seir? Edom, exactly. So notice, just as the Emim formerly lived in Moab, so the Horites were a people that formerly lived where Edom later came to be. 
But the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now, notice that you've got from verses 10, 11, and 12 that they're all parenthetical. Everybody see that? And notice that last little line there. Just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. This is probably a comment because it was dealing with the Moabites and the Edomites in that time that was inserted after the completion of its writing. This is probably like a post-editorial comment that was thrown in here. And the reason is, is because you see, as Israel did to the land, have they done that yet from what Moses is talking about? No, in fact, they're standing on the edge and he's recounting their history to them so that they're not doomed to repeat it. And then he's talking about the successes that God is giving them and how he has led them so that they're all psyched up for battle and they cross over and they can go in and conquer. That's what he's doing. So this is probably a past or sorry, a, a future compared to where we would be time period-wise uh, idea here. Now, in verse 13, uh, Mitch, we're going to need that, that map we were looking at again. Now, rise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So we crossed over the brook Zered. Now, this is actually a brook that flows out of the southeast of the Dead Sea. If you notice, it comes up and you've got the Arabah that flows down into the Aquabah, but at the very lip there, you have got a river that flows out to the side. And notice that that river acts as, that's the Zered Brook, it acts as a divider between Edom and Moab. Does everybody see that? So that's how you would define the property boundaries at that time. So notice, you're going up through Edom, cross over the Brook Zered, you're going to be in Moab, and look what it says, verse 14. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea, until we crossed over the brook Zered was how long? Good googly moogly. Everybody see Kadesh Barnea here. Everybody see the brook of Zered that's flowing out there underneath Moab. What in the world? You know what that shows you? It shows you the costliness of unbelief. When God says something and we don't believe it because something in our life has gained our attention and has become more right than what God has had to say, unbelief is sin and sin costs you greatly. How many of those people you think wish they had their 38 years back? How many of those people that died in the wilderness wish they would have crossed over into the land? I know Moses did. In fact, Moses started to argue with God a little bit about it and God told Moses, don't say anything to me about this again. It's done. Pretty serious. So notice, sin will cost you huge. So notice, it was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Now, it's important that you see that it is the death of the men of war at this time, but it's not the completion of the judgment. And the way that we know that, because who is speaking here? Moses, and he is the last one to die. Remember? He's taken up at the very end of the book up to a mountain. He's able to look over and see the land. And then God takes his life right then and there. So it says here, verse 15, Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. Why? Unbelief. They did not believe. They did not inherit the land. 
It says here, verse 16, so it came about when all the men of war, all the soldiers who were 20 and older of the first generation, had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, saying, today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab, right? Back from what we saw in chapter 2, verse 9. When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, now stop, the sons of Ammon, if you want, mark this in there. This is the third people group that he's talked about, Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites. And does anybody know who the Ammonites are from? That's the other daughter of Lot. Remember, Lot had two daughters. One is Moab, the other one is Ammon that came from them, okay? Now, just so we can see it, and we can kind of see it here a little bit, it's spelled differently, but see where Moab is? Go up a little bit there, and everybody see uh, Diboth, I guess it is, Heshbon, then you go up along that red line, Ammon's there. Uh, Mitch, can we pull that other map real quick? Mitch is a master at this thing. Ammon, right here, okay? Now, see, this is different because it's already got the tribes in place after they settled. But notice, there's the Zared Brook that comes out, the Salt Sea. There's the Arabah that goes down in the Gulf of Aqaba. Edom here, Moab here. And notice that Ammon is up to the top and to the right. It is important that you see that. Up to the top and to the right. Why? Because notice it still stands with the 12 tribes in place. Does everybody see that? It's still standing. It's not a section of land that was captured. Why? It's not theirs. It's an inheritance that was given to the descendants of Ammon. Why? Because they are directly related to Abraham's descendants. And so therefore, that was not land that they could have at that time. So notice you have Reuben and Gad settling, but not crossing over into that land. It gives you a future picture of what these things will look like. So now, verse 19, when you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them or provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a what? Or inheritance, good. Because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, verse 20 is an idea that also goes with 10 through 12. Notice it's parenthetical. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim. Now, Rephaim is what was brought up in verse 11. For Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. Okay? So the Rephaim were the giants that dwelt in that right-hand land there. Then you also had the Emim that lived there in Moab and the Horites who lived there in Edom. Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is just good sound stuff, isn't it? Like get your maps out and just go for it. I love it. Anytime that you're studying and you have geography, it's not a waste of time to pull out maps. Do it. Take the time to find where these people are going. And the reason why they're giving you these details is because the Bible is not lying to you. It is telling you and giving you a geographical path for why these things happen. It is true, true, true. So notice, it is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim. For Rephaim formerly lived in it, but the Ammonites call them Zamzumim. A people is great, numerous, and tall as the Anakim. Notice we found those in chapter 2, verse 10. Those are the people the children of Israel freaked out about. But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, just as he did for the sons of Esau who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them, 
they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And the and here we have a new group of people, which we, we kind of understand about them, but not really. And the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and lived in their place. Now, the Avim, it's believed, were also a type of giants. They were a type of Rephaim or Emim or Zamzumim or whatever word you want to use for them, but big people, okay? The Avim were also part of them. Everybody see here as far as Gaza? Now, just from watching CNN news at night, we know where Gaza is, right? You're familiar with the Gaza Strip and the whole deal, what that valley looks like, all of it. So we, we get this idea of how far they were dispossessed out of there. But it says here, the Kaftorim, who came to Kaftor, destroyed them and lived in their place. We have another dispossession that goes on here. Some people believed that what these were, the Kaftor, were actually Cappadocians, is the idea, and they would have been from the island of Crete. Now, here's what's interesting about the island of Crete. Are we familiar with the island of Crete that's kind of sitting out there in the Mediterranean? We're more familiar with that because that's where Titus went in order to oversee a church. He was sent there by Paul. So we get this idea. But what's interesting is, is does anybody know what people group came from Crete and settled into this mainland here? What's that? Not that I know of. Say Loggins and Messina, is that what you said? Okay. Possibly could have, but that might have been later. If it was a Greek kingdom, it was definitely later. The Philistines. The Philistines came from Crete. So when you're talking about the Kaftorum, uh, this whole idea of uh, the Kaftor, that kind of thing, you're actually talking about people that probably have some sort of of uh, origins with the Philistines. Now, put your finger here and turn with me over to Jeremiah 47. Jeremiah 47, verse 1. I seriously can't tell you how excited I am when I hear pages flipping. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for not using your phone. I love it. I love it. Jamie, repent. 47, 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh conquered Gaza. Notice the similarities there of the dispossession and how far they were gone. Everybody see that? Gaza. Thus says the Lord, behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent and overflow the land in all its fullness, the city and those who live in it. And the men will cry out and every inhabitant of the land will wail because of the noise of the galloping hooves of his stallions, the tumult of his chariots, and the rumbling of his wheels. The fathers have not turned back for their children because of the limpness of their hands. On account of the day that is coming to destroy all the Philistines, to cut off from Tyre and Sidon every ally that is left, for the Lord is going to destroy the Philistines, the remnant of the coastland. Everybody see it? Kaftor. Good. And then it says, verse 5, which is kind of funny, baldness has come to Gaza. <laughs> now, I don't picture it wiping out the land. I picture a bunch of guys losing their hair at one time, and that's just hilarious. So anyway, 
Everybody back to Deuteronomy 2. I know that's not what it is, but that's still funny. So now, notice now that they're trickling up into this area of Ammon. And let me show you this real quick, because this is important, what we're going to deal with. Right here is Heshbon, okay? It's important that we know that, Heshbon, exactly where it's located at. It says here, verse 24, Arise, set out and pass through the valley of Arnon. Now, real quick, the valley of Arnon is the river that forms the border between Moab and the Amorites to the north, okay? So, it's going to be right, probably this right here that's flowing out. Everybody see this? Man, it's real light. I understand. And this is my thing here. I asked Mitch to pull this map because it's a map that I have hanging up in my office that I can refer to easily that has places listed. But anyway, Edom, Moab, the Zared separated it. But when you get up into this idea here, you're actually... Okay. <laughs> 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 Woo! Wow. You know what? I might have told you wrong. Let me think about it. Between Moab and the Amorites. So between Moab and the Amorites we've been dealing with. Mitch, can you scroll down just a little bit? You can blow this thing up to where it's going to knock me off the stage, but you can't scroll down. Hold on. Keep it there. Keep it there. And I can't tell. That may be it right there. I apologize. I can't tell. Yes. There it is. The Arnon River. Forgive me. Coming out of the Dead Sea. The Arnon River. So there's your division, right? So notice back here it says, verse 24, Arise, set out and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look. Watch this. I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession, begin to inherit, and contend with him in battle. Now, does everybody see something different that just happened? All right, see that? Edomites, hey guys, we're just passing through. We'll pay for our food, we'll pay for our water. Have a good day, right? Moabites, same thing. Ammonites, same thing. But now we're dealing with somebody different. Is this guy related to Israel at all? No. Let's read a little bit more. Verse 25, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon king of Heshbon. Now watch this. With words of what? Peace. Now the Lord's told him what's going to happen, right? The Lord's, the Lord's already got it down. Notice the way that Moses handles this. Let's start out with a foundation of peace. Let's start there. Saying, verse 27, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money so that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Does this sound pretty smooth? 
Does he sound pretty upfront, like an upstanding guy? Here's how I'm going to handle it. We're, we're, we're going the peaceful route here, even though the Lord's already told me that you're going to give him into our hands. Now, here's what's very, very interesting to this. Sihon is an Amorite. He's not related to Abraham, which means that he's fair game. And the reason is, is because he is currently upon the land that is Israel's. This is important that you get this. The Lord determines who lives where. He determines what time they are born and what time period. He, just, he determines who sits on thrones. The book of Daniel is very clear about that. He determines who is ruling and who is not. He deals with it. He has it down. No problem. So notice he says here, verse 29, just as the sons of Esau who live in Seir, Edom, and the Moabites who live in Ar, Moab, did for me, until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving us. Notice he keeps the promise up front. Everybody knew about this promise. It wasn't like going on in the back of the classifieds or something. You had to dig it out. Everybody knew about this. Now, what do you think he's doing when he's talking to this king, Sihon, when he's talking to him by saying, just as we handled business with the Edomites, just as we handled business with the Moabites, why do you think he does that in verse 29? Why would he tell this king that? I mean, the terms are upstanding, right? We want to pass through. We're not going to be frolicking in your fields or anything like that. We're going to stay on the highway. You're going to be able to see us the whole time. We're going to pay for what we eat. We're going to pay for what we drink. Please let us pass through. The Lord is giving us the land on the other side of you. That's where we're heading. So we want to come through your place to get there. And just so you can tell that our track record is credible, you can look at the reputation of how we dealt with the Edomites and how we dealt with the Moabites. The Edomites and the Moabites served as a visible witness that Israel wasn't coming in just knocking heads and slaughtering everybody and throwing people around. That's not what they were doing. So far, they fought no one. They're just coming in out of the wilderness. Does it sound like that this shouldn't have been a problem? I mean, maybe we're a little bit more gracious than this dude was, but there's more going on. Verse 30, but Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. Now, this is a part that a lot of people have problems with, okay? For, here's the reason, the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Does anybody have a different translation than the NASB that they want to read that from? Curious what yours says, how it describes that. Everybody's Everybody here has the NASB and it says, God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. Everybody has that? Made his heart defiant? Made his spirit stubborn. Okay, made his heart obstinate. Good, good. Notice it says here, in order, here's the reason why, he tells you, in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. Now, does that bother you? Let's talk about it. He hardens Pharaoh's heart. 
Okay? So was it just that Sihon was vacationing in the wrong place for too long? And God's like, well, the only way I know how to deal with this is harden your heart and have people kill you. I, I like the way that Jerry said that. There's probably some mighty nasty stuff going on in that territory. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Do you think that God would harden somebody's heart that hasn't deserved it? No. It's real easy to fall back and go, well, we all deserve it in some way. But chances are, and I don't know for sure, we could probably research this more and, and, and come up with something. Probably there was some sort of light of revelation like was given to Pharaoh about who God is, and they rejected it. That's very important to see. Yes, sir? I would say where sin abounds, grace abounds more would be the idea of the believer because where we see that would be the end of Romans 5 and the beginning of 6. And so I think what that's talking about is with Paul branching out of chapters 3, or sorry, the end of 3, chapter 4, and the beginning of 5, he's coming out of the justification explanation of the section into the sanctification section. I think what he's trying to convince the believers at that, more, at that moment is, is that if they have sin, the grace of God is greater than that. But what he also commands in the very next part is, is shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And he says, no, that's the craziest thing ever. In fact, in the Greek, it's the double negative that he uses, uh, which is the no way Jose in the Spanish version. Uh, so absolutely not, no. And the reason is, if, if we have died to sin, how should we any longer live in it? It's completely inconsistent and incompatible with who we are in Christ now. So that's how I would say that that, that, would, that would move forward. It's a very good question. In fact, here's an interesting thing for your homework to look at. Go back and read the Exodus account and read through from chapter 1 to about chapter 12 and note every moment that Moses has an interaction with Pharaoh or that there is some mention that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Note each one on a piece of paper. Put all the data together. Take it from 1 to 12 so that you've got it in a chronological order and see what happens. And that will be very eye-opening and revealing about what we're dealing with here in this situation. Is there any indication that Sihon worships Yahweh Elohim? None. None at all. So there's strike one against him. Would you say that he might be in a plot of land that's not his? I mean, what has been the theme throughout here? These people came in and they dispossessed these people because God gave them that land. These people came in, they dispossessed these people because God gave them that land. God didn't give him this land. That's a big point here. Now let's continue forward here. In fact, how much time do we have? We can hit on this next week. And here's what we're going to do next week is we are going to look at how do we deal with God's commands to kill everything. Because that's essentially what he, what he deals with. The, uh, the way that, that some atheists want to use the argument would be, well, the reason is is because God is commanding genocide. He's, he's con commanding the extinction of an entire group of people is what he is. In a way, yes. From an atheist, godless point of view, that's the only way that you can see it. But this is also the whole reason why they deny the existence of a god if you have a God who is the creator over everything and we are the creatures that he has created, then every single one of us, regardless if you believe in Jesus or not, are ultimately answerable to him for what he's handed down. He is our creator. He is the supreme. He is the superior. He is the sovereign that we are answerable to. 
So in being answerable to him, we have to give an account. We have to. So how do we deal with this whole idea of just killing going on and, and God commanding that? We'll deal with that next week. In fact, we'll spend probably all of our time on that. Look at verse 31. Let's try to finish up this chapter. We've got five minutes left. The Lord said to me, See, I have begun, now watch this, to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. Now remember, he's not dealing with trained, seasoned soldiers. This isn't a group of Navy SEALs that he's brought out of Egypt, okay? These are wanderers. I mean, they're vagabonds. They're, they're I mean, hippies. I mean, I don't know what to call them. I mean, they, they are not prepared for battle. They're not, yeah, man, let me just polish up my gun and we'll get out there and get the job done. That's not what's going on. It's not. Notice, I've begun to hand him over, begin to occupy that you may possess, that you may inherit the land. What is being put before them? What's being put before them? The opportunity to what? Huh? Possess the land. Inherit the land. These people are standing in the way of God's fulfillment for your people. Now, why is this important? What did he just get done recalling to them throughout chapter 1 and the beginning of 2? The failure of the first generation to do what they now have the opportunity to do. I have begun to give Sihon over to you. Now you go in and begin to occupy this. Take hold of it. Get in there. Was it possible for the second generation to fail? Could have. First, and here's the interesting thing. The first generation could have trusted God and obeyed like Caleb and Joshua did. And remember, Caleb and Joshua are still alive at this time. They still made it. They were granted the inheritance in the land, which is interesting for their faithfulness. Their faithfulness merited that point. You know what would have had to happen? God would have had to wait for these people to die and start over with them again. Now, that's hypothetical. We can't get into that. But all we can do is go with the pattern that we previously saw. So it says here, verse 32, Then Sihon, with all of his people, came out to meet us in the battle of Jahaz. That's not Jabez. Don't everybody get all crazy with that one verse, right? That crazy book. Uh, verse 33, notice, credit where credit is due. The Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we defeated him with his sons and all of his people. So we captured all of his cities. Does everybody see that? It's not like they just strolled up into Partyville and took the place captive, okay? That's not what we're dealing with here. It's not, hey guys, we got Ryo down, woo! <laughs> cities, 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 okay? Cities of people. Notice it says here, so we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed. Everybody got that? The men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities, plural, which we had captured from Aror. Now, here's what's interesting. Aror, I guess I'm saying that right. That is northeast of the Arnon River. So if we go back to the Arnon River up there, everybody see it there on the right-hand side? The very bottom tip of where Reuben's going to possess that land. From there... Look what it says now, which is the edge of the valley of the Arnon and from the city which is in the valley even to Gilead. Does anybody know where Gilead is? Mitch, can we pull down a little bit, take a look at it? 
Yeah, bring it down this way so we can see up some. Everybody see where our Aurora is, whatever. Everybody sees that. Now, here's the interesting thing. Everybody see the Jabbok River? Everybody see it right here above Sekhoff? This is the idea right here. Where were they located? Down here. Cities. Cities. The children of Israel came in. All of that. Notice. What's that? Who? Oh, Sihon? No, they were uh, uh, Ammonites. Let me see here. Where's it at? Sihon the Amorite. Forgive me. Amorite, not Ammonites. Ammonites are part of a lot. Amorites. Yes. Uh, you know what? Uh, I want to say that was chapter one. I don't doubt that he did. Uh, let me see here. Um, see here. Verse 20, you've come to the, chapter 1, verse 20, you've come to the hill country of the Amorites the Lord God is about to give us. Before you take possession, appear be made. Gosh, I want to say that we saw that somewhere before. Forgive me, man, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I, uh, yes, but no. Uh, and the reason is, is because, of course, we've seen that from this map, that's what they ended up possessing at the time. We would look at that today with what we're dealing with, and forgive the little pun or whatever it's called, but they only occupy a little bacon strip there along the, uh, the Mediterranean. It's funny because they don't eat pork. Uh, but anyway, but what you see, the, the geographical boundaries given in Chapter 15 at the end is the whole idea that they actually possess from the Nile River all the way over to the Euphrates. So they've never actually occupied the full extent of the land. That's never happened, even at the height of the kingdom. There's some people say, well, at the height of David's kingdom, they had branched out and was actually able to get all that. They never conquered at all. And what you find out when you get into the book of Joshua is because they ended up making a treaty with the people instead of obeying God's word in order to kill them, they actually compromised the mission and are never able to occupy the full land. So it's, it's kind of a, a crazy thing. You know what? I will research that and find out. I'm sure if we pick up a good Bible dictionary, it'll go ahead and give us the answer, but... Uh, we'll have to see that because the other place where Sihon is really mentioned is chapter 1, verse 4 when they're dealing with that. Um, so let's finish this up real quick. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer for you, man. I apologize. If you know and you're just stringing me along, uh, the Lord knows it. Okay, let's make sure. So notice, it went all the way from Aror to Gilead, verse 36. There was no city, watch this, there was no city that was too high for us. Now pause, what is that a direct jab at? Huh? No, not giants. What's that? The walls go up to the heavens. Remember that? We can't go into the land. These cities are so fortified. As far as we look up, that's how big they are. We'll never conquer them. Notice, no city was too high for us. God's fighting the battle here. The Understand this. Here's the very essence of wisdom. The second generation had learned something that the first generation didn't. Look at somebody else's mistake and do the opposite, right? Do it differently. 
wisdom. That's wisdom. So notice, it was not too high for us. Here it is again. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, right? All along the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country uh, and wherever the Lord our God had commanded us. So the cities of Ammon over here, you didn't venture over into this. You dealt with the king of Heshbon here and you conquered from down here at Aroria or whatever it's called all the way up to the Jabbok River, but you left Ammon alone. God determines the boundaries. Now, the problem that we're going to deal with next week, verse 34, we utterly destroyed the men, women, and the children of every city. We left no survivor. How do you deal with holy war? How do you deal with Yahweh God commanding you to absolutely destroy a group of people? I mean, I don't believe it's ever going to happen, but imagine if God called you today to go in and kill a whole group of people. Grace Bible Church. Get together and go over and kill everybody in Lodi. Would we do that? How crazy is that? I hope not. I live there, right? Something like that. We get selfish about it. But, I mean, it's a serious question because that's really what they were actually physically dealing with. And for a, the Atheists love to dive in on this. Ha-ha, your God's a murderer kind of thing. Can't trust him. He's the most you know, egotistical, sadistic person that's ever existed. And I think Christopher Hitchens calls him the most evil, sadistical person that ever has lived in fiction, is what he calls him. So how do you deal with this situation? So we'll see next Sunday we'll deal with that, go through some of the passages of how to handle it. So let's pray. God, thank you for our time in the Word. Thank you, God. Uh, that we see that you are compassionate and gracious. We also see that you're full of justice. And Lord, uh, you put people in places where they should be. You have them uh, possess land as you see fit. You have them to be born in the times that they are according to your will, according to your word. We pray, God, that we not stray from it, uh, but Lord, we would stand in awe of it. And that, Father, it would be uh, prevailing above any other a word that somebody would try to introduce into our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much.